0: Hey everybody, this is The Signal Cafe, where we connect you with the people and resources you need to be successful in agile, product management, and lean startup thinking. This is episode number two, and today we're speaking with Bob Galen, an agile coach, author, and speaker who's been doing this for 20 years and is widely recognized as one of the leading voices of pragmatic agility. Bob, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jack. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm not sure how well, widely recognized I am, but I'll take that as a compliment and uh I've really been looking forward to this uh, chat. So thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so I want to point out, and I'd like to refer to you as the most interesting man in Agile. I think that you look a lot like the Dosekis, most interesting man in the world. And your sign off on your Agile blog is stay Agile, my friends. Now, is this intentional?
1: Well, I like that sign-off. I like that tagline from the Dos Equis guy. I'm not sure I look like him. That's up to everyone else to determine. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I may a little bit with the beard and such. That, that was unintentional. I just like that. To me, that was a very smooth sign-off. And uh, the other part of it is I, I realize how tough it is for um, evangelists and, and champions of Agile and coaches to really – it's tough in the real world. So I want to give them a gentle sort of reminder to just, you know, stay rooted and grounded and keep trying is part
0: of that tagline as well. Yeah, I like that because I, I, I think his was stay healthy, my friends. So I love it. I think yeah, it's- yeah, yeah, it, it was intentional. I just liked it. And he was a
1: smooth guy and they fired him. And I was I was very I was disappointed in that.
0: <laughs> Me too. That was a good run. He had a good run. So tell the listeners a little bit about how you got started uh, with agile coaching and consulting. And outside of work, what are you most passionate about? What, do you, what hobbies and interests do you just absolutely love?
1: Well, my start it was in the late 90s, and it wasn't as a consultant. It was as an inside coach, if you will, or a leader. Who was I was an early adopter. I've always been an early adopter of interesting things that I thought might help my teams and my organizations do better software development. So I was an early adopter of XP practices when I was at Lucent uh, Bell Labs. I was an early adopter of Scrum in the late 90s uh, when it was just a white paper basically, and and uh, you know Schwaber and Sutherland were just talking about it as an experiment and sharing it, and I tried it out at a company in Connecticut. So. My genesis was as a practitioner, a leader. Uh, so, so in, you know, a developer. Have, I'm a developer by training, uh, but as a leader of software development teams, and then just being inquisitive. And then over the years, I started doing writing and consulting and training. As far as a personal thing for me, uh, it's, I'm, I'm very family oriented, and uh, so I have I have four children, and I and there's symmetry in my life. I have uh, two boys, two girls. Uh, and they are all grown and out of the house and stuff, and then I have four grandchildren. But the, sim- the symmetry left, uh, and I have three, um, three girls and one boy on the grandchild side, and that may grow, but right now I have four kids, four grandkids, and then I've replaced, I say this to my kids, but I've replaced my children with two dogs and two cats. Uh, they don't like it when I say that, so... So so my life is around my my life is around quadrants or sets of four so far. And so I think there's something and I actually talk in my product owner book about the four quadrants of product ownership. So maybe I'm stuck on the number four for some reason. I don't know.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So what are the four quadrants of product ownership?
1: So when I I've written I just published my my third edition of uh, of, of a product owner book. My the first time I re- the first edition was in 2009, and I started writing it. And at the time, the the role of product owner wasn't very well understood. Well, there wasn't a lot of help around it. it. you know around 2006, 7, 8, and we were struggling in in companies. And I thought, well, we need to provide guidance. So. I I published it then, didn't have the quadrants in it. In the second edition, I had this notion of quadrants. So there's sort of four areas of concern to me of of deep and broad product ownership. Uh, One is uh, product management. Uh, Another one is business analysis. Another one is project management. So I put product management as a profession or a skill or a craft, uh, and then I separate project management out. And then leadership is the fourth quadrant where I think, uh, product owners have—they don't have a big L leadership responsibility, but they have a little L leadership responsibility. For example, setting the mission and vision for their product, really crafting—you know—MVPs and and really energizing the team. To me, uh, the, the evangelizing part of that is you have to lead the organization. You have to convince people that we're—you know—what way we're going. Uh, very often, they have to convince—you know—executives. So it's not not just downward convincing it's it's upward
0: convincing as well that's awesome so product management ba business analysis project management and leadership and and i think that you know project management is also often associated with um more of a scrum master role rather than a product owner role but there is certainly a lot of overlap there sometimes in actual roles and uh, job titles, um, but also just in um, the responsibilities of the product owner. So I think that that's an awesome call out.
1: There's a, there's a wonderful video by Enric Nyberg in Sweden. You've probably seen it. It's a 15 minute video and it talks about the, um, the, 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 that role of the product owner. And, uh, and one of the aspects he calls out is managing expectations. So, so it's not just the ask side for product ownership, but it's also the receive side. And then are we tracking and managing external expectations? And so to, to me, that that's just from traditional project management, and those folks can do that, to the role. So the askers also have to manage the progress and managing how they're communicating that progress outwardly to customers and to stakeholders, if you know what I mean. And that video yeah. really does a nice job of capturing that. So when I say project management, it's not so much Gantt charts or risk plans and things like that, but it's sort of that that tracking and expectation management sort of ask to realization and how are are we mapping the, the original requirements to the realization and delivery.
0: That's really good stuff. So I want to transition into scaling agile, and you've written a lot about scaled agile Frameworks and some kind of cautionary tales and concerns, as well as some suggestions for companies that or organizations that may not be able to use a one size fits all really prescriptive model, but may need to actually emerge from the unique situation that, that a specific organization is in. Talk a little bit about how you, how your opinions have changed on the matter over, over the years and, and kind of where you're at right now. I,
1: I think I don't think my opinions have changed too much. It I I'm old enough and I've been around the agile community long enough where the original scaling framework was something called Scrum of Scrums. Right. So right. before there was Less, before there was Nexus, before there was Safe, before there was Scrum at Scale, before there was uh, what, what am I missing? What less? Um there wasn't, you know, there was nobody making lots and lots of money uh, and publishing a, an active uh, picture, a diagram on the web or anything like that. Um, there was Scrum of Scrums. Uh, I remember in 2007, I, I was lucky enough to coach briefly for a few months at a company in, outside of Philadelphia, uh, Siemens Healthcare Systems. Uh, so it's been long enough that I can talk about them in general cases. And Siemens Healthcare, it was in Mount they're in Malvern, PA, and they had at the time 120 Scrum teams. And so 2007, this was pre this was pre all of the scaling hoopla. If you if you're with me, uh, yeah. And uh, so Scrum was an incumbent at the time, and XP was an incumbent. So the the agile world was very simple. It was Scrum. It was XP practices, and it was – Kanban wasn't even that popular at the time or even that well-defined. This was pre-David Anderson's work. And then the only scaling terminology we had at the time was Scrum of Scrums. Uh, The other scaling terminology we had at the time was something called like cyclical releases. Dean Leffingwell had written about uh, release trains at the time. Uh, and he had written a little, and at the time we were also doing release planning, so cross-team release planning, uh, what Safe calls PI planning, if you're familiar. Uh, yep. And so there were these, there were these concepts uh, around that. There was there were not three tiers, four tiers, five tiers. There was not Kanban this, or three tier that, or portfolio that. It was, those, those are the tools we had. And Siemens, to their credit, managed to, they had three large product lines so three, so those 120 teams were clumped into three product areas that integrated from a consolidated product perspective. But then for, for arithmetic sake, let's say there's 40, 40, 40. There were 40 teams that were working on product, major product one, 40 teams on major product two. Uh, and they managed to deliver those systems using a Scrum of Scrums. Uh, and so they that was Scrum team coordination, that was having a Scrum of Scrums meeting. So integrating product owners and Scrum Masters. They had a product owner Scrum of Scrums. They had a Scrum Master Scrum of Scrums. They did, the product owners managed some portfolio planning, if that makes sense. Like yeah. sort of consolidated backlogs. But they managed in simple terms, they did not have release train engineers, uh, or they did not, you know, necessarily get stuck on value stream mapping or value stream engineers. I'm picking on safe a little bit. They they did not flatten the organization like Less. Less says that a, you know, one product owner per nine teams or something. So we're not, they did not overload the product owners. They maintained sort of consistency there. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I think I was influenced by the basics. Uh, the other thing that Siemens did that I, I still honor to this day is they didn't lose sight of the team. Uh, their prime directive was, uh, you know, the thing that's ma- generating money for us is the team. Uh, It's not about portfolio, it's not about release, it's not about project management, it's not about the metrics, all of those things are nice, but they were really focusing at the time on training, making sure that the teams were healthy and mature. Uh, They brought in ThoughtWorks and they were doing um, XP practice training a lot, and they had coaches, they spent as much money on upward coaching or downward coaching at a team level as they did on upward coaching, in fact more, Uh, So, and it was successful. It, you know, arguably you could have nitpicked it, but it was a successful installation. So fast forward, what is that? 2007, and that's a, this is a real example to what 2019. So 12 years later, now we have a myriad of uh, scaling sort of frameworks, etc. And uh, my beef with all of them in general, and and they're they're all different. Some of them are more simple. But I, I think some of them, they've just added complexity. Uh, not, not all. Some of them are relatively, you know, Scrum at scale is relatively simple. Uh, less tries to be simple. Uh, but safe is, is probably arguably the most complex of the scaling frameworks. But I, I guess my beef is they've gotten away from basics uh, is my concern. And I want to, I really care less about how many tiers you have. You know, it's not that safe is bad or good. It's Let's make sure that we don't lose sight of the value proposition of, like our agile, our our agile principles. Maybe is a better way to say it. If you know what I'm saying, yeah. let's not lose sight of our principles and, and and invest in the framework too much. And I think a lot a lot of the frameworks can. It's it's not intentional. They're not bad. Like Dean Luffenwill is not trying to screw up the agile universe by introducing save maybe he's a little money hungry i'm kidding (laughs) but but he's not i i know he's well intentioned Uh, so but at the same time if you give this really complex thing to customers very often they don't understand how to do it Um, so how to transform under save so the simpler the framework can be i think the easier it can be for organizations to scale and that's that was the one of the advantages of the learnings at siemens as well is they they relentlessly tried to keep it to the simplest possible thing that would work for them, so they didn't yeah. go to a maximus framework. They went to a minimus thing that they had to do to get to get the work done.
0: Yeah, I want to I want to repeat a couple things um, that you said that I think are extremely valuable. First is keep it simple, right? Um, <clears throat> focus on finding the simplest, the least complex solution or uh, structure or whatever that looks like that works for your specific organization. And one of the things that I know you've written about is taking the Kanban approach of really starting where you are. So what does your organization look like, right? How is it currently structured? Um, Is the ROI of a really prescriptive framework worth Reorganizing everything, right? Potentially, uh, because it's worked elsewhere it doesn't necessarily mean it'll work in your specific organization. So, focus on the teams, keep it simple, and start where you are, um, taking into consideration the uniqueness of your organization. I think that that's all really, really valuable um, and, and something that is often missed. In a lot of transformation work, and another thing um, that you said is is always bring it back to the principles and make sure that you're focused on the principles. One of uh, my mentors, or, or you know, an agile coach that I've I've worked with, um, often says, "Whatever the practice or ceremony or artifact or this or that, focus you know, flex on practice and process, but stand firm on principles." And I think that that's really valuable too.
1: I, I absolutely. I mean, we lose sight. Um, I think it's also, I mean, and I'm agreeing with everything you said, it's the basics. We lose sight of the basics. I talk a lot. I'm going to pick on safe a little bit now, but I'm, you know, it's good natured too. I mean, I, I, I get that folks are using it and I, I respect, you know, people's decision-making. Uh, but when I, I encounter, I, this is an honest statement. I've never encountered a successful safe installation yet in my coaching journey. Now, I'm not exhaustive, but and and the one of the anti-patterns that I see is they're leaving the team, what I call they're leaving the teams behind. They're doing safe organizationally, but when I when I scratch the surface and look at the maturity of the teams, are they predictable? Do they have uh, are they having fun? I I know that's a horrible idea. Uh, You know, is is there a healthy team structure? Um, And are the teams really delivering high value and high energy and predictability? And I find that, you know, you have this facade where we're safe and we're PI planning and everything's great and look at what we're doing. But if you look at the teams, they're really struggling. And that's what I mean by you've left the basics behind. So when I descale safe, very often, I'll try to convince an organization. I'm like, can we shut it off a little bit? Can we turn it down? Can we turn down safe for a little bit? And can we turn up team maturity? I don't want to turn safe off necessarily, but I want to make sure your value proposition is your team, right? It's not the framework. And so let's make sure your teams are really running on all, it's like an engine. You have an eight cylinder engine, but only four cylinders are firing. Why don't we focus on, and it's all polished. The outside of it's nicely polished. We got it, you know, we got it shampooed today and it, look how it shines in the sun. But when you look at the engine, it's not really tuned very well. And I encounter this universally almost. And 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 again, I try not to go down safe lane and, and I'm not trying to sort of argue it. What I'm trying to do is, that can, we, can we turn it down a little bit and then let's focus on your teams? Let's focus on basic performance. And I see that pattern over and over again. And so now let's let's reflect that back on a safe adoption. I think a healthy, safe adoption would be start with the teams. So don't lead with safe. Lead with your teams. Lead with practices. And then here's a novel idea. If we're going to grow, if we need scaling, then grow it from the bottom up. I hope I'm making sense. Grow it from the bottom up and grow it because you need it. So do do PI planning, and PI planning rocks, but do it because you need it. Uh, hire an, a release train engineer, sort of because it makes sense. I don't And you don't even have to call them that, but do it because there's a need in the organization, not because SAFE says hire five RTEs, et cetera, et cetera. And then if, if, if an organization sort of has that bottom-up, organic, simplest possible thing that works, if they end up in two years with SAFE, a full measure of safe then I'll, I'll tip my hat to them i'm like cool that's exactly what you needed so so make that so
0: let me ask you this so one thing you said um as you see as an anti-pattern is um in in safe or in other uh agile frameworks that, that maybe focus too much on the scaling rather than kind of the bedrock right um where they're leaving the teams behind that indicated that the real focus should be to start with the teams and team agile maturity. What are some other anti-patterns or some other questions that you would want to ask in the situation where you walk into a new organization, they're running safe, they're running less, they're running nexus, uh, they they perceive that there's room for improvement and you're asking, you know, several initial questions.
1: Well, the... Another area, and it's not so much a question, but it's an observation. So there's the teams aren't being invested in, or trusted, or empowered, sort of anti-pattern that's pretty common. Uh, I think there's another common anti-pattern where leaders don't really understand agile. So now I'm picking on the leadership crowd, <laughs> cloud. and 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 I you know they bought so they paid for safe. I think uh, scaled agile has a leadership workshop, right? Like a one or two day you know, boot camp that they run leaders through, but that to me doesn't, but their behavior doesn't align with understanding. So I don't measure leaders' agileness by the number of certification letters they have behind their name. I measure it by, I observe their behavior. So, you know, you can talk about, I have this certification and I read this book and I had, you know, I had coffee with Kent Beck last night, you know, and he, we smoked a cigar together, etc. I That's all great. That's, that's great. It's how do you behave in the trenches? You know, for example, you know, a PowerPoint in safe training says trust the team Uh, or, you know, healthy team based metrics, not dysfunctional metrics. Like, how are you measuring teams? Okay, so what's your behavior? So you you know, you learned it in the class. Now, what are your measures? You learned it in the class. Are you actually uh, you know, we talk about, um, you know, sort of supporting failure. You with me? Failure is learning. Learning is good. Yeah, you know, fail, fail fast, learn fast, uh, pivot, adapt. That's great. Those are great words. Is that how you're behaving to your teams? And then very often the answer is no. So, so the leaders have had studies, but they're not. They haven't really been coached and or trained and or expected. Very often, maybe the senior leader in the organization isn't really buying it. So they're actually they haven't morphed. They haven't changed their mindset. So it's not it's not just the teams that have to change their mindset. Is leaders have to change their mindset. And honestly, and the behavior to me is the measure of that. So that's another thing that I'm looking for. And then I'll coach to that. So when I'm descaling, actually, so it's not just a teamwork. Remember, remember I was talking about like descaling. I try to turn safe down uh, and really refocus. And it's not just me. It's refocus the organization on their teams. I very often shine the light on. uh, And you know what? The light needs to shine on you all. And you need to change your mindset. Uh, one place to look, to, so you can look at behaviors, measures are a really great place. What, are they, what is the organization measuring, and, and how are they measuring? And then a third anti-pattern real quickly is, and I've seen, I see, and this isn't, this has nothing, well, this is not a scaling problem, this is a general problem, is I still see almost every client I encounter is biting off more than they can chew, if you know what I mean. Uh, they have a, let's say, let's use points, they have a capacity across teams of 1,000 points. Per release train, per quarterly release interval, and they they're trying to bite off 3,000 points, and and they yeah. continually try to convince themselves that they can do that for whatever set of reasons. I once attended a PI planning event at at, at at a team. Maybe there were 20 teams in a room not that long ago with a client, and the managers were sort of giving thumbs up, thumbs down to the team commitments, if you know what I mean. So. Yep. If they didn't feel like the teams were biting off enough in PI planning, they were coercing the teams during the PI planning event. I mean, they weren't bad people, but it was they were coercing them because the roadmap said that we needed to get more done than the teams were actually <laughs> trying to commit to. And then at the end of the PI planning event, you know, when you have that, that commitment and everyone goes thumbs up and we're, we're all on board, we have a committed release plan, are you with me? Uh, all the teams went thumbs up. And I had observed all this coercion and they basically doubled or they doubled or tripled it. And everyone smiled and everyone's thumb went firmly in the air. And and they, you know, they gladly went along and said, oh, this is a committed train. And everyone applauded. But there was sort of they bit off more than they can chew. Oh, and it was even worse than that. The last train, they bit off more than they can chew. And the one before that, they bit off more. So their retrospectives have shown them that they had a tendency to bite off more than they could chew, but they didn't pay attention to that. So I think I'm not picking on the scaling. Uh, I think I think those are three you know, sort of really big bang anti-patterns that I see. That don't lose your team, okay, if that makes sense. Make sure that leadership on board does it a disservice. Make sure leadership is changing their mindset right? They have to be on board and changing their mindset. And that's a, that's a path for them. And then make sure the capacity you're, you're running your organization at capacity and, and make sure, and and not what, not thinking that you're doing it, but making sure that you're doing it. Did that answer your question?
0: Yeah, it totally answered my question. And the third um, I think is really interesting. Um, And it, it just, I think what's glaring about it is that you see we bit off more than we could chew two times ago last time and we're doing it again. You would like to think that you know if it wasn't scaled if it was just a scrum team then then we would say okay our commit was higher than our delivery for the last 3 sprints. Let's try to maybe estimate a little bit better, maybe commit a little bit more appropriately and uh And improve our predictability um I don't know what the phenomena is that that causes that at scale. maybe it's kind of groupthink or maybe it's the end of two really long days of planning, and everybody wants to get home, or maybe it's um you know not wanting to challenge a hundred people in a room and uh express um a lack of confidence. I don't know but but I think that there's really something compelling there that uh it's tough to tough to answer, tough to get right, for sure.
1: I think it's part leadership. I, I mean, as a leader, I in some organizations, so I, I'm not like I said, I'm not just a pointy headed coach. I mean, I am recently, but I've been a senior VP or a CTO in companies. And I think one of the things we have to do is message like what's important. And I, I intentionally deemphasize speed and more in all of my conversations, even when we did release planning kickoffs. It was like, I want more, I want the world, I want to get to Mars next year, right? I want I want, I want, I want global warming to be resolved, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I want us to bite off what we can chew, I don't want us to compromise quality, I don't want us to compromise team health, and those things are equally important to biting off lots of stuff, and I want us to just Trust the process, and and as a leader, I think we can set the tone that gives the team space. So i I'm, I know I'm putting I'm putting probably 80 percent of the burden on the leadership and the way we message and our it's even our body language, and how we interact with the teams. And I, I think it's our responsibility to remessage the team the uh, what the priority balance in delivery. Do you know what I'm saying? And to make yeah. sure that we're not that it's okay that it's absolutely okay to bite off what you can chew, chew it, and deliver it. And then I think yeah, the team sort of get that.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, there's something um, rewarding and um, psychologically healthy about uh, estimating correctly, uh, committing appropriately, and delivering what was committed, right? And, and that helps then the, the alignment between the development organization and the business because what was committed to was delivered, and that helps with roadmapping and planning, and and promises to other parts of the the company. And and I mean, that's really one of the goals, I think, of any scaling effort is to get better transparency and predictability between the development arm and the business. And uh, and when that's not a result of whatever the efforts are, then then it requires, I, I think, a, a retrospective and, and what we're missing. You know,
1: I think you said something powerful, Jack, and I want to circle back to it. Is you said, you brought you brought scaling down to a single team. Remember my example of if we were, you know, 20 teams in a room and we're twisting their arms and we're biting, you know, if we're failing, if we brought that down to a single team, we would never continue to do that. I right. actually want to extend I think what you said is that's the mindset of scaling. We sort of, it's a trap. We sort of think of scaling as different. I actually want us to think that think like a Scrum team first. What would a good Scrum team do, and then extrapolate that to the scaling? And if we can, that's what I'm saying. Think about the you know the team. Think about Scrum team. Think about the basics. What would you do with a team if they ignored their <laughs> their retrospective results and continued right. to fail? <laughs> It's a simple, at that level, it's a simple question, right? Uh, what would you, do, you know, how much collaboration do we need? Uh, what if the scrum team was doing, you know, 80% portfolio analysis and not delivering on their commitments and they were out of balance? What would you do? You would you would self-correct that because the focus there is is very simple. Uh, a scrum team, you know, what if they said, you know, we have to, I don't know, create like uh, business case epics to justify every story and use some Guma's prioritization model and methodology for that. And it took so much time. And, yet, you know, like, is it worth the value at that level? So, so again, I think you hit it. It's, I, it's scaling, but we want to always look at it. It should be looked at through the lens of simplicity or the team or look at it. It's, it's a scrum team on steroids, right? Rather than an organizational steroid that just happens to have scrum teams and, right. and replace scrum teams with Kanban teams, if you will. I it's not really the methodology. It's the same. It's that same mindset. Sure.
0: This is awesome. I want to review and, and just go over one more time, some of the anti patterns and, and focus areas um, in any agile organization or, or any scaling effort. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of three big areas and one is to focus on the team and really make sure that, the, that, that it's being kept as simple as possible, as lean as possible, and that the team agile maturity and value delivery and fun and happiness and health um, is one of the highest priorities. Secondly, you talked about leadership and really making sure that um, it's more than <laughs> smoking cigars and, and reading books and getting certifications, um, but but really truly understanding like what um, the principles are behind Agile and understanding what the goals are for the organization um, from an Agile perspective, right? And and really kind of truly identifying with the the Agile mindset. And third, you talked about. Um, predictability and alignment and and not biting off more you can chew actually looking at the data looking backward um using the concept of retrospectives um organizationally to say you know how can we continuously improve how can we not commit to more than we can actually deliver because that just causes less predictability uh, more stress more kind of tension and divisiveness and and. So focus on the team, focus on healthy, agile leaders, and focus on appropriate commitments. And I think that that's super uh, valuable, super good. So what are you working on now? You've put out a bunch of books. You've got two different blogs that you run. You are running a a consulting company. Um, What is your focus in in 2019 and the near future?
1: Actually, well, so first off, and yes, you're right I I probably overworked, so my whip limit was too high last year and it's <laughs> earlier this year, so I'm not, so I'm actually focusing on taking a break and recharging my battery, so that's one that's one thing, all joking aside uh, yeah. this year, this year, I like to plan my own personal development, like sort of put my money where my mouth is and practice what I preach. So this year, I'm going to be going to uh, some coaching training, send myself back to coaching training. And do more coaching, uh, and take a little. I'll I'll continue to write, but uh, take a little bit of a break from the books and things. I like you said. I just published a few months ago uh, the third edition of my product owner book. I've done some other books. The one thing I'd like to note is I just recently spun up a new website. So I've been blogging on uh, rgalen.com, which is my company website, and I've been. There's a lot of blogs there, so there's a lot of posts there. So I would encourage everyone to take a look at the blog. But what I found is I had some things I want to personally say that really weren't. I didn't want to put them on my company blog, and I could have, but I spun up something called Agile-Moose, just like it sounds, and that's where I want to put things that are a little bit maybe, you know, sort of. uh, thought-provoking or personal. I just did a blog post talking about pocket knives, for gosh sakes, I'm a collector of pocket knives. And I normally wouldn't post that on my company website. So uh, so pay attention to the moose, uh, agile-moose. Uh, look at my writing. I think that's a, a great way to catch up with me. The other thing is, I don't know if people are aware, I, I've been podcasting for, It's come, we're coming up on 10 years now. In January, it'll be our 10th year anniversary. Uh, of something called the meta cast and it's meta hyphen cast and a friend of mine, uh, Josh Anderson, and I do that. And it's, it's one of the joys that we, you know, we just enjoy being with each other. We're friends uh, and we enjoy talking about agile stuff. So that's another great resource out there. So if you haven't listened to the MetaCast, please listen to the MetaCast.
0: I love the moose. I think that, uh, first of all, your writing is just so readable, Um, and and I'm just really impressed with everything I read that you put out. I I love it. Um, I'll I'll link to your Twitter handle, your uh, company website, uh, agile-moose.com, your book resources as well as um, Metacast in the show notes on our site. Uh, signal.cafe and is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap up?
1: No, just I want to appreciate everyone. So Agile is a worthwhile endeavor so I would just share continue to try to you know sharpen your saws, get better this podcast and there's so many resources out there but try to find the good ones, listen to them and just Let's, let's refine our craft. Uh, and then the last thing is I want to just thank you for inviting me, Jack. I appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity. I had some fun. So thank you for, uh, for creating an engaging opportunity uh, to share some of my thoughts. And I hope I didn't offend any of the scaling frameworks in the known universe. And if I did, I apologize to everyone but thank you.
0: No, no, absolutely. And, and thank you so much for your time and all of your writing and efforts and thought leadership in this space. And uh, I think it would be a miss if I didn't sign off with. Stay agile, my friends. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Signal Cafe podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I would love to hear from you. Um, You can go to the site, signal.cafe, and leave me a note there. Uh, You can also go to iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening and leave a review. I'd be super appreciative if you would rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever it is that you are listening. Um, This is the second episode of the show. You can find the show notes and links on the site at signal.cafe forward slash two. Thank you so much again for listening, and I hope you have a great day.